Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before introducing our topic and guest, I would ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, to please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. We thank you in advance for your generosity. Listeners are likely aware that CVS, along with other pharmacies, has announced its intention to dispense the chemical abortion drug Mifepristone. While this announcement raises serious ethical, medical, and religious liberty concerns, chemical abortion is not the only issue facing the organization. In October 2021, J. Robin Strader, a nurse practitioner at a CVS Minute Clinic in Keller, Texas, and a devout Christian, was fired for refusing to prescribe contraceptive and abortifacient drugs. But Strader is fighting back. She filed a lawsuit against CVS in U.S. District Court, Fort Worth, claiming she was unjustly terminated on the basis of her religious beliefs. She is represented in part by Boyd and Gray & Associates, a law firm based in Washington, D.C. Today, I am speaking with Jonathan Berry, a partner at Boyden Gray and one of the attorneys involved with the case. Jonathan should not be a stranger to podcast listeners. He was our guest for Bioethics On Air Podcast 81, titled Legal Perspectives on the Federal Vaccine Mandate. And I've linked this podcast in the show notes. Jonathan has extensive experience in navigating the complexity of federal government processes, having worked at both the U.S. Department of Labor and the U.S. Department of Justice. Prior to these roles, he served as chief counsel to the Trump transition team, and he has also clerked for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. Jonathan Barry, welcome back to Bioethics on Air. Joe, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back um, and great to be talking about uh, more of these cutting edge issues. Yeah, yeah. Glad to have you back, and, and hopefully you'll be back for more in the future. So, Jonathan, you've been a guest on the podcast previously, as I mentioned in the intro, but uh, it's been a little while, and I was wondering if you just give our listeners a brief overview of your work with Boyd & Gray. Sure. Um, we are a law and strategy firm based in D.C., working, litigating, counseling at the intersection of law, public policy, and politics. And increasingly, we've been we've been looking at issues of what gets called woke capitalism. You have a lot of big business in America uh, that seeks to impose uh, these increasingly narrow priorities and worldview on anyone in their reach, whether it's customers, uh, whether it's shareholders, and whether it's employees. And and uh, with a special interest that I've got in the labor and employment space, off of the Department of Labor experience that you mentioned. Um, this was an especially exciting case uh, to get involved in. Yeah, well, I was wondering, let's let's kind of get into it. So so today we're going to be discussing the case Strader versus CVS, and we're going to go into detail about it um, in, in a few minutes. But I was wondering if you just give our listeners a bit of an overview. So who's involved, what's the case all about, and what role is Boyd and Gray playing in it? So this case uh, arises primarily um, under... Uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. That's uh, the big federal uh, anti-discrimination law for employment. And Title VII protects the religious exercise, um, belief, practice, observance of believers of all stripes in the workplace um, against um, 
uh, adverse actions, uh, mistreatment by uh, by their employers. Uh, you know, it's not an unlimited right, um, but it is uh, it is something that offers real protection for uh, religious belief in the workplace. In particular, Joe, the, the thing that matters about uh, about the law here is it's not enough for an employer, in this case CVS, to apply neutral rules uh, that uh, that go across the board. Uh, sometimes the law will actually require uh, employers like CVS uh, to make an affirmative uh, accommodation uh, of religious observance. Um, a very a commonplace situation where this sort of thing comes up is for an employee's Sabbath observance. Mm-hmm. Uh, this can come up for for Sunday Sabbatarians like like us Catholics. It also comes it also comes up for Saturday Sabbatarians uh, like Jews, Seventh Day Adventists, and um, it's a it's 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 an important area of the law. It's an evolving area of the law. The Supreme Court, uh, thanks to the good work of my co-counsel at First Liberty Institute in this um, uh, in this space, just heard oral argument on on really the core issue for religious accommodation, which is how much of a burden does an employer need to take on uh, when accommodating religion? There's there's already for a long time, there's been a, a pretty heavy obligation, pretty serious obligation on employers to accommodate disability uh, mm-hmm. in the workplace. So yep. the fact that there might be um, you know, mobility restrictions in terms of workers getting around. The fact that that's you know applies to a worker with or without disability uh, doesn't necessarily excuse uh, the employer. Um, employers have a pretty robust obligation to make at least certain kinds of workplaces wheelchair accessible. You know, right. as as an example, there's a there's a new obligation uh, in, in, imposed by Congress at the end of last year uh, that does something similar for pregnancy for uh, in the workplace as well, a, a further accommodation for, uh, uh, for, for pregnant mothers. So this, uh, uh, this case really gets into the obligation of, uh, of employers to accommodate, accommodate religion. Um, so this, this intersection of employer obligations as applied to um, some of these really socially significant issues that we're seeing uh, as part of what makes this case so interesting to, um, to, to me personally. Yeah. And the fact that uh, I remember when we were first talking about this a number of months ago, we hear from people in Strader's position, uh, mm-hmm. people who are, you know, because of their religious beliefs, they feel as if they're being marginalized or you know, maybe even pushed out. So this is actually yes. a really, really, um, it, it, this is an individual case, but I, I think this, this is a microcosm of a much bigger issue that's happening in our country. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So looking forward to hearing about that. Uh, before moving on, can you tell us, Jonathan, a bit about um, First Liberty Institute, who they are and, and why is uh, Boyd and Gray collaborating with it on this case? So First Liberty Institute is a religious liberty law firm that works to protect uh, religious liberty um, through all kinds of different uh, channels. Um, they often partner with private practice uh, lawyers like my firm um, and and others. Uh, we uh, were also teamed up on one of the notorious 
cake baker cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked together on a um, case called Klein for the business uh, known as Sweet Cakes by Sweet Melissa. Cake. Yep. Um, Melissa Klein case, yeah. Uh, a case is, that's already gone up uh, one time uh, in full to the Supreme Court in the wake of Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, a case um, that another firm that ADF had. Um, uh, so they, they're they very assiduous at First Liberty about partnering with um, what I'd like to think are, are very talented lawyers. You know, don't take me as the example. They also <laughs> work with Paul Clement, who maybe a slightly larger group of folks has um, has gotten to know, who's an extraordinarily talented uh, Supreme Court litigator who most recently with First Liberty, I think this was his most recent case, um, argued and won uh, in defense of the, the liberty of a uh, public school football coach, Coach Kennedy, yep. uh, in, in, in Washington State, yep. um, to, uh, to say a brief prayer at the 50-yard at the line. Um, so they, they work with a lot of, of really fabulous attorneys, and I'm, I'm delighted to be working with them on this case as well as on the Klein case. Yeah. I was, uh, you, you kind of already answered this question, but I was wondering if is this something new for Boyd and Gray? I know you're talking about you've you've worked on the Klein case, and and one of the the avenues that Boyd and Gray is is moving into is is this uh, combating woke ca- woke cap or woke corporate capitalism, I guess. Mm-hmm. So is this part of that, or or is this is this are these types of cases something new for you guys? So I, I think I think thematically, it um, uh, you could view this in in that theme, as I'd said of. Uh, of combating woke capitalism, uh, it is it's new for us in that um, uh, our firm, like a lot of boutique law firms um, staffed by by conservative attorneys, um, have not often um, taken cases against private sector defendants. Mm-hmm. Um, our we we do a lot more uh, in the vein of uh, suits against the federal government, uh, most commonly, and also against uh, states that are uh, overreaching their authority typically as a as a constitutional matter. Um, but I, I think that as um, as a lot of corporate governance um, becomes a lot more politicized, uh, I think this is only one of a much larger series of uh, similarly themed cases that uh, we and, and, and several other similarly situ- situated lawyers, um, are going to be looking at pretty seriously. All right. Well, let's take a look at the case. And so I, you you sent me, and I'm going to I'm going to post uh, the actual complaint online so people can look at it as well. It's kind of legalese, but but I was able to understand <laughs> it, so it, it can't be that bad. Good. Hopefully, we did our, our some of our communication job right because we we do we do want to make this story accessible to uh, people who are not uh, part of the guild. Yeah. It wasn't e- as easy to read as, as Justice Alito's Dobbs decision. That was a really easy <laughs> read. But th- th- this wasn't so bad. So anyway. Well, I, sadly, none of none of us, I can fairly say, is as uh, talented a writer as as Justice Alito. So I uh, I apologize, but we're not going to do better. <laughs> All right. So Jonathan Strad- uh, Strader's complaint had five causes of action, which I'm going to identify here. And for each, can you briefly explain kind of what's going on? Uh, maybe mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the case itself, what's being argued, and what the applicable federal or state laws is here. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and let me let me say at the outset, Joe, a lot of these are going to going to overlap. So I'll probably we'll talk the most I think about the first one. Okay, sounds good. All right, so the first complaint is failure to accommodate. Mm-hmm. What is what is ha- what's what's going on? What happened with the case, and and what's what's your argument? 
Right. Um, so um, uh, Ms. Strotter spent uh, about six years at CVS uh, with them understanding that uh, as, a, as an observant Christian, uh, she could not uh, she cannot do anything to facilitate um, uh, the drugs that would contribute to abortion or to infertility. Um, that that stems from her her Baptist faith that mm -hmm. she can't be complicit uh, in those things. CVS understood that, and um, overwhelmingly, this was a this was a non-issue in terms mm -hmm. of her practice. Uh, she was working at a at a retail minute clinic. Um, in, outside of Fort Worth, Texas, uh, and uh, overwhelmingly, she's helping people with with minor illnesses, with certain kinds of physicals, uh, with with administering vaccines and and, and injections and, and and stuff like that. The ordinary kind of thing that you might walk into uh, a pharmacy um, to get some immediate acute care to take care of whatever the issue is. On the rare occasion, the quite rare occasion, um, where someone would come in and ask her for um, for access to the hormonal birth control pill or a, or for a depo provera injection mm -hmm. uh, she had a well-settled routine uh, where uh, which cvs blessed um, that would allow her to refer that request uh, to another practitioner um, and then um, that that went on for about six years uh, but in 2021 uh, CVS announced nationwide that they were no longer going to be accommodating religious objections to uh, to the provision of what they referred to as pregnancy prevention. Right. Um, and our argument, in in short, is that uh, Title VII, the law I spent a little time talking about, uh, puts an affirmative obligation on CVS to uh, to accommodate her religious observance. That's that's something that they they had done previously. And in our view, um, the law requires them to continue providing. Yeah. I was, I was wondering if I could, um, I just wanted to read really quickly, and this is from the complaint. It's actually paragraphs 105 and 106. Um, read what Title Seven says here. So under paragraph 105, and this is on page 14 of the complaint for anybody who may have it already, but uh, under it says this, under Title Seven, it is unlawful employment practice for an employer, quote, to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against indi any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions, or privilege privileges of employment because of such individual's religion. And then it goes on, and I found this really interesting in, in 106. The term religion includes all aspects of religious observance and practice as well as belief. So I, I'm wondering, Jonathan, is is, and I don't know if you can think of CVS, but I, I know that the um, when the uh, Obama administration was trying to impose a contraceptive coverage mandate, they went and they defined essentially what a religious employer is and essentially kind of a, a defined in some ways what religion is. Mm -hmm. And I, I really like this, you know, the line from Title Seven where it says the term religion includes all aspects of religious observance and practice as well as belief. I think a lot of people think that religious liberty well, what happens within the four walls of your church, you know, that's fine. But once you walk out of that church, it's not. But Title Seven says something very different. Yes, yes, very different indeed. Um, and this is something. I mean, it, the it's funny. The the legislative history, Joe, here is pretty 
uh, is pretty interesting in this regard because originally this this definition of religion um, uh, was not in the first iteration of of the Civil Rights Act mm-hmm. in 1964. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I think I'm recalling the history rightly. Uh, you had courts um, start to start to talk about this issue and and question, all right, do, you know, in essence, as you put it, does does religion here mean um, simply uh, freedom of belief, um, or does it also expand to it to include freedom of exercise, uh, freedom to take public action, not specifically in the worship context? That is consistent uh, with uh, your your personal religious beliefs, uh, and or to refrain from uh, actions that would be inconsistent with your religious beliefs. And uh, when Congress amended Title VII in 1972, they codified this definition and and put in this expanded, uh, this more expansive definition um, of of religion. So yeah, it's it it definitely takes. Um, the side, I think, consistent with our larger legal tradition that uh, freedom of exercise of religion is not just about uh, what you might do uh, at church. Right. Okay. So the first cause of action, failure to accommodate CVS, um, is not accommodating Ms. Stratter in terms of her religious beliefs. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the first one. Second complaint is disparate treatment. What does that yeah, mean? That's- so, so disparate treatment, generally speaking, refers to um, uh, mistreating or at least treating an employee differently because of his or her uh, religion. I mean, it also applies to race and the sex, right, right. Uh, and and so on. And and here we've got um, we we have out we've alleged in this complaint um, that um, there are there's a variety of comments from Ms. Strotter's manager, for example saying things like, boy, you sure have some strong beliefs uh, and, and really putting pressure on her to essentially change her religious beliefs right. uh, to get with the program. So it's it's not just that CVS had this neutral rule and she ran afoul of it, um, requiring an affirmative accommodation like in the in the previous cause of action, but that um, uh, we've, we've alleged that evidence and other other bits that suggests that they did this um, that they they terminated her precisely because of uh, her religious faith, which her... is su- super illegal um, <laughs> under under Title Seven. Is that a technical? I always yeah, ask that, stories. That is, is that a tech... Super illegal. Super, <laughs> super illegal. All right. The third um, cause of action is disparate impact. What is mm-hmm. what? What do we mean there? So disparate impact um, refers to actions taken by employers that that may or may not uh, be done because of hostility to an employee's uh, race, religion, sex, uh, whatever it is, but that have an ha- have an adverse effect on them uh, regardless. So that's um, sometimes um, the the law permits that. sometimes it it doesn't. It really goes to um, you know if I've got a if, if I've got a neutral rule that, um, has an outsized impact on uh, workers of a particular sex. Uh, for example, um, uh, at some point, I, as the employer, may have to show that uh, that, that action was job-related and consistent with business necessity. And so we, we've argued that the, the policy here that CVS pronounced uh, was not consistent with their 
business necessity. There are less discriminatory alternatives, um, things they could have done, like allowing religious accommodation. So there's, like with a lot of these, there's going to be some overlap mm -hmm. conceptually, especially with failure to accommodate. Um, but it is a uh, it's a distinct um, source of authority for why uh, this was illegal. Can you? I, I'm now I'm a I'm a legal layperson. Thank goodness. <clears throat> I, I was wondering, can you clarify a little bit? Because to me, and and maybe I'm just not hearing you clearly, but how is disparate impact different from disparate treatment? The the big difference, Joe, is that um, to show to prevail on a disparate treatment claim, the plaintiff has got to show uh, wrongful intent uh, on the part of the employer, that the, the employer intended to take action on the basis of religion or sex or race right. of, the, of the employee. Uh, to, to prevail on disparate impact, plaintiff does not need to show that. Um, the, the plaintiff just needs to show that there were sufficiently large disparities under the, the employment policy but then they've, the, the employer can rebut that by talking about business necessity and job relatedness. So in disparate impact, what the employer intended is beside the point. Um, and because it reads out um, intent, um, it is a all else equal, it's going to be a lower bar for an employer to successfully defend against. Yeah, I was just going to say, it would seem like, claim. yeah, I was, I was just going to say a disparate treatment, this seems to be a more difficult claim to to. Uh, to prove from your end. Yeah, that's often that's often going to be the case. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So the fourth cause of action is violation of Texas law against religious discrimination. So now we're shifting from federal law to state law here in Texas. So what is violation of Texas law against religious discrimination? So uh, Texas has has a law against religious discrimination in the workplace that is that's that's going to be similar to Title VII's protection uh, for for religious um, exercise in the workplace, um, and so uh, you can have it's 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 commonly going to be the case in in a situation like this um, that you would plead these overlapping uh, federal and state uh, causes of action. They're not they're they're not identical, but there is some there's some some overlap. So is there an advantage to doing that? I mean, does or would it? I mean, would the case be as strong if you just focused on the federal versus the state, or does it? it so that that's that's going to vary from case to case, um, and we'll I think in this case, Joe, we'll have to see how it develops. Okay, um, and the last uh, of the the five causes of action is violation of Texas law protecting medical personnel from participating in abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, and so um, here, this the um, uh, we've we've alleged that Ms. Stroddard it was being made to participate in provision of drugs that she believes in her judgment um, are potentially abortifacient. And so, if that's um, if that's true, then CVS is running afoul of this Texas law uh, that that uh, protects rights of providers' conscience. Um, to not participate in abortions. Yeah, that one uh, that one caught my attention because while I and I think you know certainly the NCBC would hold that if uh, one of these hormonal medications has a post fertilization effect, that you know it's that's highly problematic. Although we know that I, I'm wondering if CVS is going to argue that you know the medical textbooks they'll say that pregnancy begins at implantation. So I'm wondering if this whole thing is going to come in to that discussion so we'll, or not. Well. You know, we'll, we'll see how the, how the case um, develops, but I, I, I will tell you, and this is um, 
in there in CBS's response, what's called an answer to the complaint, uh, they've consistently denied yep. that um, uh, uh, that any of the drugs right. um, that she was required to prescribe have an abortifacient effect. So. Yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It's really interesting to see how the courts deal with that question. Um, you, you're kind of a great uh, segue into, into this next question. Uh, Jonathan, CVS has responded to the allegations against it. Um, and I know you sent it to me and, and I read it. And, and basically, it's kind of the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Um, we have no knowledge of this or no information about this. But how did, how did CVS respond? Uh, overall, right. It's the the, <laughs> um, the the answer to a complaint is is usually less of an opportunity for uh, for for telling the overall story of the case um, than uh, than what the what the plaintiff will do in the complaint. And I think this right. was this was no exception. So um, some of the basic uh, uh, facts, uh, CVS does not contest that they're not they're not going they're not saying that Miss Strotter was not an employee of CVS <laughs> or anything like that. Like, who are you people? What what are right. you doing here? Right. Um, anything like that. But uh, you know, they've they've indicated that um, they do not they they plan to to vigorously contest the case um, uh, in, in in all kinds of ways. And and really, what what it does, Joe, uh, is it um, it sets up um, the next um, the next phase of this case, um, which is going to be which is going to be discovery. Um, uh, the judge recently issued an order um, setting the parameters uh, for how that's going to proceed, um, and um, and it's time to um, to start really um, investigating the case and just to understand understanding better what uh, what all was going on in advance of. Um, seeking to move this case along one way or another with the court. Yeah. So Jonathan, is this case an isolated one or has CVS had to deal with it with other employees? No, it's not an isolated case. Um, this is something that there are, by my reckoning, um, multiple other uh, cases against CVS uh, right now that my understanding is arise out of really the same national policy. They've they're facing suit in uh, Virginia right now. Uh, they're facing um, suit in Kansas uh, right now, uh, as well as our case. Uh, and there may well be others out there um, as well. But I assume none of these other cases have been completed, so to speak. There haven't been court rulings in them yet. That's that. That's right. Okay. All right. Interesting. I'd like to kind of jump away from this case and then come back to it um, in a little bit. But one of the things or one of the reasons why this was so interesting when, again, when you first brought this up to me a few months ago, is that the concerns that are, that are, that underlie this case are concerns that many, many other people have. So one of the concerns that many Catholic healthcare professionals have is conscience and religious liberty. And, and I just think of the Catholic Medical Association. I think of the Catholic Healthcare Leadership Alliance. We at the NCBC mm -hmm. were very, very concerned with where conscience and, liberty, conscience and religious liberty protections for uh, Catholic and other healthcare professionals are going. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, can you tell us, and again, I know this isn't your... Um, you know, this isn't your your expertise necessarily, but where do conscience and religious liberty protections for healthcare professionals stand today, both state, federal, maybe even local level too? And what does the future look like? It, it just seems like this case is kind of a microcosm of 
a road that none of us, well, at least <laughs> at least those people of the organizations I mentioned, none of us want to go down this road, but it seems like we're going there. Mm-hmm. What, what, how does this look to you as, as we're recording this, this podcast today? Well, Joe, um, let me start with uh, the, the reality that right now, um, accommodate, there's, there's two big, at least two um, big challenges for conscientious objection um, for, for healthcare providers. Um, one of them has to do with Title VII, the main law that we're dealing with um, in this case. Uh, and that is that back in the 70s, the Supreme Court of the United States issued an opinion that has effectively been taken to mean that the the duty of religious accommodation in the workplace by employers it's not it's not very robust. Um, the, the phrase that sometimes gets used is that an employer does not have to accommodate religious observance if doing so would impose more than de minimis cost um, on the on the employer. This is a this is different from how uh, the courts and the and, and Congress, for that matter, have clearly stated the accommodation obligation is for uh, uh, for for workers with disabilities and now very recently uh, pregnant mothers in the mm-hmm. workplace uh, as well. So that's that's kind of that's consideration one. Consideration two um, is that many of the conscience protections for healthcare providers. Um, outside of this context, and there they are, there are several. Many of the ones in the, at the federal level are uh, are only enforceable directly by uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, um, which right now under not Secretary good. Becerra is <laughs> not maybe good. not the most enthusiastic um, uh, about about these kinds of of, yeah. of conscience protections. Um, that said, I, I'd, I'd like to um, I'd like to give two signs for optimism, one for for each of these. Uh, one is that in the Title VII employment context, uh, the fact that the Supreme Court has um, has uh, decided to revisit this issue in the case that uh, my uh, colleagues and their co-counsel at Aaron Street at Baker Botts, another firm. Um, have just presented at the Supreme Court, uh, there, there is a, I think there's a widespread expectation that the court was not going to take that case uh, unless they were interested in revisiting um, how much protection um, they were going to recognize that Title VII gives to uh, religious exercise observance uh, in, in the workplace. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that when the court issues its decision, um, we're going to see uh, some greater protections there. What ca- um, what case is that, Jonathan? Do you, do you know? So a case it's a case called Groff G R O F F versus DeJoy, um, uh, as in the Postmaster General oh, okay. of, uh, of, the US, of the U.S. Yep. Postal Service. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and if the court follows its normal practice, um, that case is going to be announced. The decision will be announced probably at the end of June. Um, that's that's likely when that. We, during which uh, our, our case, in all likelihood, will still be going, um, as will those, as will those others. Um, so that's, uh, I think, that's one one sign of of, of optimism. Uh, the other is that, you know, there are increasing amounts of of resources available to uh, providers uh, who are who are being put to uh, crises of conscience. I would I would direct listeners 
for like a little bit of a primer in the in the legal space to the HHS Accountability Project that uh, that's part of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. That was um, that was set up by uh, Roger Severino, yeah. the former yep. former head of the Office of Civil Rights at HHS in the Trump administration, a real champion of religious liberty, uh, especially in the healthcare space, uh, and continues to be uh, overseen um, by uh, by Rachel Morrison, who's her, who is herself an alumna of the um, EEOC, which is impl- important on the employment law side right. uh, of these things. Uh, they've got they've got a great guide they put out with a couple other organizations on how to go about filing a federal conscience complaint uh, with HHS, um, which even if you are um, you're not a fan of, of current leadership. I, I do believe that um, OCR will continue to take those complaints seriously. And there's there's good reasons to, to file those if you feel like uh, your rights as a provider may be violated. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, I, I assume there's a, there's a web link to that. I can put that in the show notes. Um, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll get that and make sure we get that in there. Sounds good. Uh, Jonathan, I mentioned, uh, and again, we're going to come back to the, to the, the Strider case in, in a couple of minutes, but I, I mentioned in the introduction that CVS and other pharmacy chains have announced that they're going to begin dispensing mifepristone for the purpose of chemical abortion. Now, from what I've read of this particular case, the Strider case, uh, dispensing mifepristone is not an issue. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong on that. However, does or, or how, if at all, does CVS's announcement impact Strider? So the um, there's there's different possible ways that could come about. Um, the uh, the main the main issue for for a pharmacy like CVS is uh, doing this um, from you know setting aside the, the protection of, of unborn human life mm-hmm. from the religious liberty um, in the workplace um, is it's only going to heighten the conflict between religious observance um, and, uh, and and the like. Uh, there are the, the the like the percentage of healthcare providers who may work at a pharmacy like CVS who do not want to um, facilitate uh, chemical abortion um, is is uh, likely going to be even higher, um, and it's going to create, I would expect to create more frictions, uh, more problems there than uh, than than is already the case with with CVS's current policies. Yeah, based on what you're arguing in this case. Um, would current CVS or other pharmacy employees have a, have legal recourse not to provide these chemical abortion pills, or or would CVS have legal ground to terminate those who refuse to do so? So, I'm I'm going to start with the lawyerly answer, which is it depends. You know, it's, <laughs> um, uh, lawyers always yeah. say that whenever we get lawyers <laughs> on there, at least once in the podcast, somebody goes, "It depends." It depends, um, but I uh, yeah I would ex- I, I think it I think it presents um, I, I do think it presents some similar issues um, as as we would see here and I think if you know for a for a provider who um, who's got a religious objection to providing what's already on on provision at CVS to be asked to um, facilitate in, in in chemical abortion is is just a is a, is a further step. Um, that's gonna it's gonna trigger 
a lot of the same protections that we're talking about in this case. Yeah. I want, I want to ask you a really unfair question because you're not prepared for it. And if, if, you, <laughs> and if you don't have an answer, that that's, that's fine. But as we're recording this podcast, there is all sorts of legal wranglings and craziness over chemical abortion. So we had the, the decision that came out on Good Friday from the U.S. District um, Judge in North, uh, the Northern District of Texas, in Amarillo. Yep, in Amarillo. Yep, and then that was appealed, and then the the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans kind of changed part of it, but not all of it. And then it went to then the Biden administration appealed it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is basically saying, you know, chemical abortion is going to stay where it is while this whole thing is 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 playing its way. Now we're gonna we're actually gonna um, our next podcast. I'm hoping we're gonna have a different lawyer to go through all of that as well too, oh, to, ex- to explain it to us. But I'm just wondering, and again, this is all very current as we're recording this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering, does 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 do these wranglings? Do you see them as having any kind of impact in the in the Strader case at all? Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I that I do see those. Um, it's it's all part of you know any anything as as you're well aware, Joe. Um, anything that involves um, drugs and devices um, in this space, broadly speaking, related to um, human life and sexuality, like uh, it's these are like unavoidably hot button um, <laughs> topics. Oh, yeah. uh, there's kind of it's kind of always something happening. Um, uh, in the, in this space. So I, I don't, uh, I, my, my immediate thought is, um, is no, but, um, don't, don't hold me to that. Yeah. No, I won't. <laughs> it depends. Right. Right. John. It, de- it depends. It depends. Also, here's my bill. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. So let's get back to the Strata case. So, um, when do you think this case is going to be heard, assuming it gets that far? Um, when do you think it would be heard, and what do you expect the outcome to be? So um, the the judge, uh, Judge Pittman, who's the judge for our case, uh, recently issued a scheduling order that sets um, uh, sets trial date for for next summer um, to give so the, the, that gives the parties uh, a good amount of time to to take discovery, understand uh, what the evidence in the case uh, says and what it doesn't say. It's kind of the ordinary thing mm-hmm. uh, for civil litigation. Uh, and so for a variety of reasons, it's always possible that it gets decided in advance of a, of a trial date. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of, of, of mechanisms by which that could happen. You know, one party or the other files a motion saying, for X, Y, or Z reasons, uh, we've got enough for the for the judge to decide the case on papers without like a live trial right. uh, or something like that. And that's uh, that's very common um, in in civil litigation. So it's it's very tough to to game all this out, but um, it would not it would not surprise me if one way or another uh, the the district court um, here issues a decision in this case sometime next year. Um, uh, is um, that would be a pretty a pretty ordinary timetable uh, for for something like this? So, and just to be clear, next summer is summer of twenty twenty four, correct? Correct. Yes. Correct. Okay. What happens if the district court finds in favor of CVS? What do you do? Are there <laughs> are there options? Yeah, in a, in a posture like that, um, obviously uh, can't commit to anything yet. But we'd sure. be we'd be looking very seriously at 
uh, at taking an appeal to the the federal appellate court, mm-hmm. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which uh, is a pretty good appellate court. Correct me if I'm wrong. That- I, I mean, so I'm speaking speaking personally. I'm a, a I'm a clerk alumnus. Uh, I clerk for Judge Jerry Smith on the Fifth Circuit, and I um, I'm, uh, I'm 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 fond of my experience there. And um, we our firm and as well as First Liberty, our, our co counsel have several matters. Um, that have gone or are going through uh, the Fifth Circuit right now. Okay. Um, a second unfair question. Awesome. Because <laughs> again, I, I, I recognize that this is not probably your primary uh, focus in your work. But we at the NCBC get questions um, mostly from young healthcare professionals about what they can do to protect themselves from participating in unethical or immoral medical interventions. And usually we're talking about contraception, sterilization, things that, you know, that this case um, cover, but Uh also abortion and Uh so-called gender transitioning. Now, we at the NCBC obviously can't offer them legal advice other than to refer them to, you know, to religious liberty and other law firms. But what would you say to a medical professional who said, Jonathan, what do I do to protect myself from being forced to participate in medical interventions that I sincerely believe and my closely held beliefs, uh, I know to be morally wrong. Yes. So this is some, I'll, I'll, I'll give a, 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 what I can in terms of, you know, generic counsel, right. For, for, for listeners. And this is a, this is a mix of what I would call practical and legal considerations. Um, at the outset, I would uh, I would just encourage folks to be uh, to be forward thinking, to be proactive. Um, you know, what kind of um, uh, what kind of professional environment are you putting yourself in uh, in the in in the first place? Um, and I forgive me, I know I'm I'm telling folks some of what they know already, um, but um, it is it's sometimes going to be possible to um, go to work with an institution that's likely more likely or less likely to uh, respect your rights of conscience. Um, that's that that that's one point. Um, a, a second point is to is to educate yourself um, about um, your uh, your rights of of conscience conscience and religious exercise. Uh, and there, I would again, I'd refer folks to the HHS Accountability Project, um, which at EPPC Ethics and Public Policy Center, uh, which has some good resources. Uh, that are they're pretty accessible, in, including the non-lawyers, um, uh, about what their uh, what their rights are under both uh, the employment law that I've been talking about, Title VII, as well as the healthcare provider-specific um, laws that, that Congress has enacted at different points. Um, you know, to under, understand those rights um, and um, and be 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 assertive about. Um, uh, uh, you know, possessing those when, uh, if you're, if you're being put in some sort of corner, um, and, um, and if you are, you know, if you're subject to some kind of adverse action, um, mistreatment, um, threatened uh, suspension or discipline, uh, or, or worse, um, to, uh, to file complaints with the appropriate authorities, um, as uh, as the as HHS accountability has has given a, a roadmap to do, uh, and the and the last part that I, I think is also as much practical as it is legal is to um, really try to document contemporaneously um, what it is that's happening to you. Um, if 
um, uh, if your you know if your supervisor is refusing to put things in writing um, about why it is that you're being subject to sanction or, or pressure or whatever it is, I mean that's that's a tell in itself. Um, and you can um, you can also take the affirmative move of, for example, sending them an email providing your contemporaneous memorialization, your your recounting of how X conversation went or Y interaction went. Um, that can be that can be evidence um, uh, uh, that you can use to document that your rights of conscience are being abused. So that's uh, so much of legal process really comes down to documentation um, as, as, as boring as that sounds. Um, so um, uh, really, really go out of your way to try to try to paper yourself up. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. So before we get into our, uh, your words of wisdom for our listeners, I, I want to um, kind of take us back to our, our last podcast. I mentioned in the intro that you did a podcast on the federal vaccine mandates uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a long time ago. Uh, yes. It, it's, 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 back in December of 21. So, wow. Um, can't believe it's been that long. But um, at that time, you were on the podcast discussing uh, legal challenges facing um, President Biden's federal COVID-19 vaccine mm-hmm. mandates. Now, we know that these are not, uh, this issue is not front and center in the news anymore, thank goodness, or mm-hmm. you know, we're not dealing with them anymore. But the legal cases or the legal issues have continued. And I'm just wondering if you could kind of give us a, 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 an update. Where are we with these federal vaccine mandates legally? And you know, what, what if courts ruled on them? Where, where do we stand with them today? Yes. So um, uh, first and foremost is the, the OSHA private sector vaccine mandate. Um, that in, that, in that case, not long after we talked, um, uh, the Supreme Court uh, decided that um, OSHA did not have the legal authority um, to put out that um, to put out that mandate, uh, adopting arguments that while we didn't uh, we didn't present the argument or didn't give the oral argument in person at the court, we did. I'd like I'd like to say that we uh, we filed the arguments in writing with the court um, that really um, seemed to track um, how the court decided the case. Um, so very, very proud of that. And, uh, you know, much more importantly, just glad to see uh, the court strike down this agency overreach. That was coupled with a um, the court blessing at the same time, but a different coalition of justices, mm-hmm. yep. um, the authority of, of Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, to require uh, COVID vaccines uh, for at least certain kinds of providing institutions that take uh, Medicare or Medicaid. And I, I, I know the details of that less, but that is that 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 man, that mandate, which of course can be specifically relevant um, to some of the listeners here, that was upheld. Uh, more recently, relates to vaccine mandates for the federal workforce, uh, both employees and employees of federal contractors, private companies that um, contract with the federal government. It's I'm I'm very pl- proud to say that our firm, um, through my partner Trent McCotter, uh, secured the. Um, the only nationwide court order against the federal employee vaccine mandate is actually, if memory serves, it was right around the time of the March for Life um, in 2022. Yeah. Um, and that was, uh, there's been some twists and turns in that case, but uh, we recently saw 
the, the, the full Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uphold that, um, that court order against the Biden administration for federal employees and vaccines. But also very recently, there's been more uh, mixed results for other challengers to the federal contractor employee vaccine mandate, uh, which is still out there and courts have been divided. I, I, I believe it's accurate to say that there are either two or three appellate courts who have said that um, the, um, the Biden administration cannot require contractors to have their employees be vaccinated. Uh, and then there was very recently, the Ninth Circuit uh, went the other way. Um, the administration has indicated they're, they're, they're revisiting the, the contractor vaccine mandate. So even if they've got some kind of partial blessing, unclear whether they're really going to continue to, uh, to push on it. But very, like, broadly speaking, there's, there's been quite a lot of judicial pushback um, against these uh, these vaccine mandates. Yeah, and I guess the uh, the takeaway is COVID just keeps going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least in the courts. Yeah, John- and, and I, sh- I should add, Joe, that um, my uh, my co counsel at First Liberty Institute has been very active in this space, particularly for uh, for military personnel, and I uh, direct folks to to their website to yeah. see more about that. Yeah, they got a yes, good stuff there as well. Jonathan, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? I, I think it would just be uh, words of encouragement that you have, um, uh, you've got real rights um, that um, that that can and should be protected under law uh, when it comes to your religiously informed conscience. I think it's often tough in the employment scenario. It looks like your your employer holds all the cards, mm-hmm. um, and and they 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 often feel like they can get away with a lot. Uh, as I've as I've tried to lay out here, trends are are changing, um, and I, I I believe increasingly uh, people who who stand up um, uh, for their uh, for their religious conscience um, are going to see those um, are going to see those convictions um, honored even uh, even under the law. Awesome, Jonathan Barry, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air. Joe, thanks so much. This was a blast. Hope we can do it again. Oh, absolutely. I love having you on. <laughs> awesome. See you next time. Thanks. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J-Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcast button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.